you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. A momentous occasion. In space transportation startup Momentus, logging a series of milestones recently with two space tugs actively operating in orbit and successfully demonstrating their capabilities. CEO John Rood says the strategy is to essentially establish the UPS of space. And we're essentially a satellite that delivers other satellites. And so today it's very, it's become less expensive to get a ride to space if you're a small satellite maker. But that's not where most of the satellites want to go and they, they need to be distributed. And so in a lot of ways, we aspire to be like the UPS of space that can deliver parcels after they come to a destination, say like a, a port with container ships unloading, that then takes the, the cargo to where it really wants to go to. Uh, and if you're operating a constellation of say 100 Internet of Things satellites, you don't want them all clumped in one giant cloud in space. You need them distributed throughout the, the orbits and throughout the heavens. And so that's where we come in. But for all of the recent success in space, Momentus faces some challenges on the ground. The stock, which began trading in the summer of 2021, is now worth pennies, facing the threat of delisting from the NASDAQ. Contributing to investor concern, the possibility of a cash crunch. On this episode, we discuss the tech, the financials, and momentous pitch to reboost Hubble. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Maybe the best place to start is the most recent news, which is the fact that you've just inked another deal with SpaceX. That's right. We uh, signed an agreement with SpaceX where we're going to be flying on their rideshare missions uh, to low Earth orbit through the end of 2024. So every rideshare mission that SpaceX has in 2024, as an example, we've, we've booked a port on so that we can take our, our Vigoride vehicle and our customers to space. Great. And let's talk a little bit about your Vigoride vehicles, because you have two operational functioning spacecraft in orbit right now. Um, what are they doing? And what is this technology that they are demonstrating? What does it mean for the company? We, as you mentioned, we've got two Vigoride vehicles operating in space right now, Vigoride 5 and Vigoride 6, and, and those are the latest two. We launched one last year as well, which remains in orbit, but we finished the operation of it. And so the two spacecraft that we have uh, in orbit now, one we launched in January and the other one in mid-April, they're principally demonstration missions to ring out the technology, to show what it can do, to put it through all its paces in space. But we've also taken some customer satellites with us and some customer missions. And so on the first satellite of Vigride 5, we've deployed one satellite from it for a company from Singapore named Cosmosis. And on Vigride 6, we'll soon start to deploy some other satellites from it for other customers. Uh, and later in the summer, we'll take two NASA satellites to a unique custom orbit where they want to study um, essentially space weather and the density of the atmosphere and how it gets affected by space weather uh, and therefore affects the reentry rates for satellites. So we'll do that later in the year. And then the other thing we're doing on both of them is demonstrating our technology. Uh, on the Vigoride 5, we recently demonstrated our, our pioneering propulsion system that uses water as a propellant. 
and uh, put it through its range of operational uh, durations and the uh, full power uh, cycles that we expect it to go through. And then on Vigoride 6, we're going to test a, a new solar array that operates like a tape spring that you'd get from Home Depot or something to measure that rolls out and can roll back in. And so I think maybe I should take a step back because Momentus is a, a company that's focused on your space tug company. So just in terms of what that actually means. Yes, and, and we're essentially a satellite that delivers other satellites. And so um, today it's very, it's become less expensive to get a ride to space if you're a small satellite maker, but that's not where most of the satellites want to go and they, they need to be distributed. And so in a lot of ways, we aspire to be like the UPS of space that can deliver parcels after they come to a destination, say like a, a port, with container ships unloading that then takes the, the cargo to where it really wants to go to. Uh, and if you're operating a constellation of say 100 Internet of Things satellites, you don't want them all clumped in one giant cloud in space. You need them distributed throughout the, the orbits and throughout the heavens. And so that's where we come in to deliver them in a transportation mission. And there, there are others that they've developed their instrument, but they don't want to build the whole satellite. And we call that a hosted payload. And we would play the, the host, the way of giving them power and station keeping, uh, communications capabilities, operate them in space. Uh, so for example, we're doing that right now for uh, Caltech, where they have a large solar power demonstration where they're gonna demonstrate the ability to collect solar energy in space and then transmit it wirelessly to Earth, which is you know kind of mind blowing to think about. <laughs> wow. Um... In, in terms of these capabilities, in terms of these services, uh, you mentioned you're demonstrating the technology so far. Uh, what is, I guess, what does your customer base look like? And how quickly do you become operational and, and generate revenue, I guess, on a more regular basis? Well, our, our customer base is a, a lot of new space companies that are trying to take advantage of these two megatrends. One, the ability to make um, much smaller satellites. Think the size of like a tennis ball can or larger, you know, maybe the large ones of a small sat be like the size of say a microwave oven that folks have at home. But these smaller satellites pack the uh, computing power and the capabilities that formerly found were much larger satellites. Because there's very low launch costs also, and you know, McKinsey intimate, estimates the uh, cost per kilogram to send something to orbit has come down by 95% over the last 20 years. So you have what used to be a big barrier to entry, high launch costs, and it used to be a big barrier to entry. You need a very large satellite. Now you have lots of smaller ones. And so, uh, for example, we're, we have uh, several Internet of Things uh, companies that are um, uh, our clients. One, uh, FASA from Spain, They're, they've put up 13 satellites so far. They plan to put up several hundred. Uh, we've deployed several for them. Uh, another company is called SatRev in Poland. They're also an Internet of Things company, connecting things like, you know, we all buy things on Amazon and elsewhere, and we track where our shipment is. Well, Internet of Things connectivity allows for that and allows for many other applications. Uh, so they're another one. We have uh, two more, one in uh, elsewhere in, in Europe that have signed contracts with us to deploy their constellations or the start of their constellations. Um, and then there are other clients commercially who want to do things like remote sensing or uh, test out their communications equipment, or as I mentioned, these novel approaches to uh, collecting 
energy uh, like Caltech. So we have those and then other government customers, NASA, that we're going to buy here probably will deliver their satellites in July uh, to the appointed destination where they want to study things scientifically. We're really pivoting to do a lot more work for the Defense Department and to focus on national security missions because we have a, an orbital space tug that can be very flexible and support dynamic operations, but it can also serve as a satellite bus. And so we have an initial contract we've been given, a notified of award by the uh, Space Development Agency of the DOD. And we're planning to do additional work for the Defense Department in support of national security missions because of our, our capabilities. Mm. And of course, you're former DOD, and everyone I speak to always says, you know, whatever, no matter what the macroeconomic uh, backdrop and environment is, and even if you were to see with all of the DC drama going on around debt ceiling and future trajectory of defense, you know, spending and what that means for budget, that space is still an area military space, national security space is still an area that is on a secular growth trajectory. Yes, uh, aerospace and defense as a general matter has been pretty uh, resistant to downturns and cycles. And in some ways it's counter cyclical historically to where there are, there are economic downturns. Space in particular has been something historically the government has driven much of that, that innovation. In the national security space, you are seeing a big growth in that area because space has become a very contested domain. I know from my former work as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Russia, China, a number of countries that uh, you know are potential adversaries are, are exploiting space to an extent that they haven't before and, and doing a number of things that make us very concerned about the, the potential for essentially warfare extending into space. Um, so therefore, the Space Force was created the Defense Department and the intelligence agencies have substantially grown their spending there. It's about 15 to 20 billion dollars per year right now in the modernization accounts to produce things and to do R&D. And I, I think that's going to grow just mm -hmm. because of the, the trends in, in the security space. And, and we want to be a part of that. And we have this very flexible platform with a lot of power, uh, good size, weight, reconfigurability, uh, flexibility that the DOD customers in particular have found very attractive, or at least that's the feedback they're giving us. And, and as I say, we've been notified of an initial award. Now we have to continue to sort of land and expand and build out from that initial beachhead. Got it. Um, you also recently announced that you teamed up with Astroscale to offer a solution to boost the Hubble Space Telescope for NASA. So are, are you, it sounds like you're going after work with, in civil space as well, in a more meaningful way. Absolutely. And, and that was a fun one, Morgan. We uh, have a, a counterpart company, Astroscale, that had done work like we have on uh, the ability to dock with things, remote proximity operations and docking. Um, and then using our vehicle, and they had some capabilities uh, related to remote proximity operations and docking. And we combined those together and we offered this uh, proposal to NASA where we could reboost the Hubble Space Telescope by about 50 kilometers, which will extend its life for a long period of time. And then after reboosting the Hubble, we would go in and collect up some of the debris in that area and get it out of the, the requisite orbit so that it didn't threaten the Space Telescope. And even though the, the Hubble is 33 years old, 
still has a lot of life left in it. It's mostly because it's begun to uh, decay in its orbit that there's a concern. And so we, with one of our vehicles, uh, combined with Astroscale's capabilities, we, we proposed to NASA that we could reboost it. And the advantage of that versus what some other people are offering is to do with astronauts or put humans at risk is we could do it a lot less expensively and also do it in a way that, that doesn't put people at risk. There's no reason to do that in our eyes. So that was, that was definitely a fun one and, and fun for our engineers to get to work on a project like that. When do you find out if NASA's um, actually going to contract you for work like that? They put out a request for information and they're, they're having a serious dialogue about whether they want to, in fact, move forward with it. Now, right now, NASA is saying uh, that they would like, like companies to offer to do this uh, at no charge, uh, largely because Elon Musk has offered to do that with, with a crude capsule. Um, and so we decided, look, let's put our hat in the ring and let's be part of that conversation. Um, and so we did, we did send in a, an RFI. Now it'll be up to NASA whether they go to the next phase and truly decide to put somebody under contract to do the service. But from our point of view, we have a lot of advantages. And so, you know, in some ways we're trying to disrupt the disruptors here who have disrupted the space industry and say, look, we, we can come in and do it much less expensively and without humans involved. Mm. Yeah, and of course that crude mission, I think, would also it would be it would be a commercial mission, um, and I think it would involve Jared Isaacman as well, who's already done one such a spaceflight with SpaceX. Um, as we're having this conversation about capabilities and technological milestones um, for for the company, I mean, you did also just release earnings, and there does seem to be a, a very genuine concern among investors about your cash burn and whether you're facing a cash crunch. Uh, and I just want to get your thoughts on that because it does look like cash as of the end of March was just under $39 million. Um, you're not profitable yet because you're still demonstrating this technology. So, so can, can you get there? Can you get across, get across that finish line to, to becoming self-sustaining? We're in, we're in the phase, just like a lot of other tech companies, where we've started now to really show what our technology can do. And we, and we spent money. Uh, R&D funds to develop it and, and mature it and get it to this phase where it's now operating in space correctly. And prior to that, you, you, you know, customers are interested, but they want to see perform they, before they, you know, some satellite operators would tell me their, their executives, you know, I'd love to send my children to space with you, John, but I want to see you guys uh, demonstrate the capability first. And so uh, now we're seeing that that we can do that. And we're starting to see then the commensurate pickup in new business interests. So to answer your question directly, we do have cash on hand to continue our operations when combined with the ability to, we think, to raise revenue by selling more to some of these customers. We're going to do some things to manage our cash to really try to stretch it as far as it can go by uh, being economical with the costs we, we incur and structuring our spending in a way that will reduce the burn rate. And then obviously we are out um, looking to raise capital as well. And so through a combination of those things, uh, you know, we think we've got sufficient liquidity for the next 12 months, but obviously this is the challenge. We are in this phase like a lot of other tech companies that we've got to uh, bring in new revenue and bring in new sources of capital before we consume the available cash we've got on hand. Mm. 12 months, I, I think that's um, I think that's very notable. You, you know, the other piece of this, of course, has been that investors have sold your stock. And we've seen that across the sector 
more broadly, but it's become a penny stock. There was a NASDAQ you know, delisting warning issued to Momentus not that long ago as well. So, so how does that impact or complicate capital raise measures that you're embarking on? Well, it, it adds an additional challenge. Um, and we, we think that we've got to stay focused on building the intrinsic value of the company to demonstrate through operational performance and the performance of the technology that there's a real value there. Um, and so what we're, we come to work every day I and mean, we just determined to be able to bring that uh, to a much higher level in terms of our stock price. Um, new orders will help and new orders from people like the Defense Department, we think, is going to show the, the commercial viability of the technology that we've got. So that, that is our challenge. And, and it gives me some comfort, but not a lot, that we're not alone in this area. There's a lot of other uh, newer space companies and tech companies that are in a similar uh, situation. But we, we've got to get to where um, we're in a different situation. We can raise, the obviously, the share price above a dollar. We, we have a path, we think, to do that. I mean, that's our plan, both through you know, growth and revenue, continued demonstration of the technology, as well as uh, you know, some things to show that we have the requisite runway to make investors have the confidence that they need to invest in us. So that's the, you know, this combination of, of showing what we can do and doing it in a, a near-term way is, is what we're you know, just determined to accomplish. Yeah. Would, would M&A ever be on the table for you? Oh, sure. I mean, we, uh, that's the kind of thing that we, we've always been uh, open to and willing to evaluate. Um, and, and I think that that is, is certainly a very viable path for us. It's not, it's not the only path, but it's, it's definitely mm -hmm. one of them that is available to the company. And we, we would be open to that. Yeah. The last time you and I spoke was August of 2021. You had just joined the company. The company had just gone through uh, a big process, a settlement process, uh, founders exiting, um, going public in the middle of, of all of this as well. Um, I guess just to, to step back and reflect on what has been a little less than two years at the helm uh, for a company that has very much been a turnaround story. Well, it's been quite a journey. And I, I remember that uh, interview very well because, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of, I was brand new on the job. I think I was here less than a week when we sat down. And so I felt like I was studying for finals or something to get ready for, you know, interview with Morgan Brennan. <laughs> but but I, I came up to, to speed and, um, but it's been a very interesting journey because taking a young company like that, that um, the decision made before I joined the helm to go public, but when you do go public and the, the sort of you know, mountain of requirements that come with being a public company are there, that was, that was a real challenge in the beginning. Today, we make that you know, every day reality, no problem. But in that, at that time, you're learning all of the public company requirements. You're trying to make sure that the technology gets developed in a way that you can, you can meet your milestones. And at that time, we just had schedules and charts showing what we could do. Um, and, you know, as you're new in the company, really diving in to make sure in the midst of coming out of COVID and other things, do we really have the supply chain set up? Do we really have the engineering workforce with the right skill set? And, and we've made a lot of changes there to develop the capability we have now and recruiting the right people. And it, what makes you successful and what makes you successful as a more, more mature company are not the same thing 
And so, you know, it's a lot like the maturation of a person. You're, you've got a, in its infancy, and then you're growing to be, you know, a toddler and a young adult and so on. Um, and so that, that's a really interesting journey for me. But I, I've enjoyed it. And the space industry is so dynamic and, uh, and exciting, actually, right now. So that, that, that's actually what led me to come here. I'd work for larger aerospace companies or worked, as you said, in the Defense Department, the national security space. But I, you know, I was attracted to it. I wanted to be part of a different part of the ecosystem in the tech industry and new space industry and, and try to, you know, be at the helm of a company trying to do things fundamentally differently in space to, to try out new ideas. And so not everything that we've tried has worked out, you know, exactly to plan to say the least. Um, but I, I'm pretty happy with our batting average. I mean, all of the things that we said we would do by the, the time scale uh, for our first launch and second launch and third launch, um, we met those production schedules. And, uh, and we, while there have been some bumps along the way in our technology development, overall, we got over those hurdles. Um, but you know, I gotta tell you, there are times, anyone will tell you when you're developing new technology, um, Everything's great one day, you come in the next day, what do the test reports show? Tell me more about that. <laughs> you know, and, and you're digging in to, um, to nug down on the, on the details to understand how do, we, how do we get past that? How do we resolve that? How do we improve the reliability? And, and that's the fun of it, you know, and what makes it exciting. Mm. So we've talked a little bit about the near and even I'd say maybe gotten into the medium term vision for Momentus. Um, longer term, what is your vision and not just for the company, but also for how this space economy continues to evolve and develop? I think over the longer run, what you're going to see is, is a, a real proliferation into much, much smaller numbers of uh, satellites in space and a very, very large number. I mean, one of the leading edge examples of that is when I served in the Defense Department nearly 20 years ago as a Deputy Assistant Secretary, space fell under me. And when we looked at things like the GPS constellation or communications, we wanted at the time much less expensive satellites and that were more survivable by being more numerous, uh, but the technology didn't allow for it. Well, today that's, that, that uh, revolution is, is underway. And Starlink's a good example where um, I'll admit the first time I heard about uh, the SpaceX idea to essentially provide communications and Wi-Fi and other connectivity from low Earth orbit, um, I thought, well, you know, the terrestrial applications, cell towers on Earth, pretty inexpensive. I wonder if that's really going to be cost effective. And, and I was skeptical. Um, well, they're, they're showing you can do that, where applications that are, you know, formerly were done on Earth are now being taken to space for effectiveness reasons, for cost reasons. Um, and that's resulting in thousands of very small satellites, but that's not the, the leading edge anymore. The leading edge is even dramatically smaller ones. And so I think you're gonna see quite a bit of that. I think you're also going to see people increasingly living, visiting, operating in space and commercial applications. And here the use cases are not all obvious, but there's a lot of uh, folks talking when the private space station industry about some manufacturing operations in space and that'll require a different set of technology to support it like a space tug like a very flexible orbital service vehicle the the ups of space and the space infrastructure requirements it's kind of like settling the west where i grew up 
Uh, you didn't need the railroads at first, but then the railroads linked things together. They provided connectivity. And, um, and once Starship comes along, very large rocket that SpaceX is developing, I think of it like a container ship carrier, these giant ships that come to port at the Port of Los Angeles or Port of Baltimore and, and unload thousands of uh, cargo containers, which are then redistributed throughout the country by trucks. Um, very similarly, you're going to have a need for space transportation. Now, that's in the civil area. I think in the military domain, um, you know, in the early days of the aviation boom, militaries weren't really sure how to use the airplane effectively. But now it's the dominant you know, weapon of war, if you will, and that along with missiles. I think you'll see some similar trends emerge in space. And that's why understanding, being able to sense what's going on in your environment, to have situational awareness, um, to be able to have flexibility, to reposition, to uh, maneuver within the, the space domain. That's what General Salzman and the Space Force leadership is talking about as a priority, just like you maneuver in the air or on land as a military force. And then a whole range of, of uh, applications, uh, I think, where you're, you're going to affect other people's space operations. Um, I mean, ideally not, uh, you know, physically, kinetically, uh, but I think there'll be other, other uh, ways that that just becomes commonplace. And not all of it is great, uh, but, you know, I think that's going to be the reality of the, of the situation in my view. So Momentus can play a big role there where we can also support military customers, transporting them, providing flexible capabilities, for sensors, for other types of electronic communications and the like, um, and resupply, uh, you know, to these various locations. So, you know, they, they talk about things akin to the highway patrol in space, and, and obviously we want to be a part of that, and also provide satellite buses, the kind of chassis that are used for uh, satellite communications, uh, satellite sensing, and, you know, positioning, navigation, timing, things like that. Mm, it's fascinating. The, the comparison, the metaphor of UPS and space or of basically what a transportation logistics network looks like uh, on Earth, on orbit, uh, is really, it's, it's a fascinating one. It kind of speaks to this, this ever-growing need uh, for infrastructure as things like low Earth orbit continue to commercialize uh, in the coming years. Um, John, it's great to speak with you, as always. Appreciate the time. John Rood of Momentous Space. Thanks very much, Morgan. Fantastic to be with you. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by following us wherever you get your podcasts and by watching our coverage on Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.